Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Welcome to another edition to the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkenall, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as some of our thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of December 19th, 2022. All right, Lee. So one of the ones I wanted to kind of kick off with, which I found kind of interesting, was maybe just because my past experience, but uh, it was a bleeping computer article and it was titled the Colombian energy supplier EPM hit by black cat ransomware attack. And oh, man. basically, yeah, I know. So what was interesting really, as I dug into this, there wasn't a lot in the article, which I usually hate these articles because they basically were saying EPM didn't really come out with anything. So there's no good details. They were able to confirm that it was black cat ransomware that hit them. Oh, they came out that they were being a, had a cyber attacker incident they're dealing with. That was like the details they released. But they were able to determine Black Cat was the ransomware based on, you know, how ransomware groups send out notifications of, you know, who they're holding hostage or whatever, that kind of stuff with data. So they're able to confirm that through other sources. But what was really interesting to me, digging into it, there's also a mention in 2020 that I guess EPM was hit by two other ransomwares um, in the same year. And in those instances, there was the snake ransomware, which is kind of interesting um, when I get into some of those details, and then the NetWalker ransomware. But basically, when I hear someone getting hit by ransomware multiple times, especially different groups, you know, I, I feel like it has a lot to say with the security culture or architecture at an organization because you know, we look at a lot of different ransomware groups, and we have a tons of different collections tied to specific ransomware groups. And there's a lot of overlap with techniques, like more than I would expect from groups that are supposed to be disparately different. Uh, so, you know, I feel like and in these cases, you know, RDP access, external RDP access was exposed for the snake ransomware, and that's what they like to use. And so that might be how they got in there. Same type of results as far as any kind of disclosure from EPM for those ransomware attacks as well. Not a lot of detail. But snake ransomware is interesting because it's a ransomware that actually has in its code things to terminate processes associated with SCADA and ICS stuff, which if, if anyone's not familiar with some of the ransomware techniques, one of the things they commonly do to make sure the encryption is more successful for you know critical things is they do a lot of termination of processes in a row. And usually it's just things that kind of prevent backups or prevent things that might cause lock files and things like that so that everything can get encrypted. But for it to target SCADA and ICS things specifically is kind of scary to think, right? So there, there's that capability for that ransomware that people should be aware of that that sometimes can become a target. And then the NetWalker ransomware that was hit, the one thing that was interesting with them that I didn't know about was the light shot. So they were you know, doing their validation of hitting that target by using LightShot, which I didn't know if when their use of it was a basically it's a screenshotting tool that you know easily posts things up to social media and they have like a site associated where you can look at the latest LightShot posts to validate, hey, you know, to screenshot here's the the file structure and data we stole. 
I didn't know if that was deployed locally and they were able to prove it that way, or they just had, here's our collection of data and here's the print screen of it. But it was something that kind of brought my attention because I didn't know about it. So I like learning about new tools and things that way. So talking about getting hit with ransomware multiple times, and I said that it might have something to do with what you're doing as far as a strategy and budget for what you're doing for cybersecurity or architecture or culture. EPM is a company that makes $25 billion in revenue on average. So already, yeah, that's a big number. So already I would feel like you're going to be a target of ransomware anyways. So them getting hit by three different groups kind of doesn't surprise that they'd be a target anyways. But I was trying to figure out what was a good rule of thumb for how much you should spend revenue-wise based on your revenue for IT and cybersecurity combined. And what I was able to find out there across multiple things was around 4% of your revenue, which would be about $1 billion. So then it was kind of like, well, gosh, it's kind of tough because if it doesn't if those three attacks don't exceed $1 billion, then you wouldn't really invest $1 billion because, you know, the costs are kind of covered. You kind of accept that risk. But if they ever do, you know, you're probably not spending enough or taking the right investments, which I thought was an interesting perspective I kind of developed when I was kind of looking over these things as far as, you know, what would you spend, especially getting hit by what I call kind of lowbrow attacks repeatedly um, in quick succession, knowing that you're a target. So, there was that. And then, you know, if anyone is, isn't familiar with the Black Cat, which is the main top of the article, we do have a hunt collection. And what's interesting about that hunt collection is five of the seven in that collection on our Hunter platform that you can get to if you go to our site and you go to try to sign up or log in on the top right um, at cyborgsecurity.com. Five of the seven are free. They're, commu they're considered community. So there's a lot, a lot of good details there, but it's also good to check out the other ransomware collections to see what else is free because a lot, there's a lot of overlap too. So, so yeah, any thoughts, Lee? Many, many thoughts from this perspective. First of all, normally what happens is an organization doesn't take security seriously and then they get hit, right? Then there's a big breach. They lose customers. They're in the news. They get embarrassed, whatnot. Then all of a sudden you see all these postings of jobs, right? Hey, we need a new CISO. Hey, we need 13 cybersecurity analysts. You know, we need a SOC manager. Then you start seeing this influx of monitoring going on, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, security engineers are involved as well. There's a couple things that kind of raise red flags to me, especially if I was a customer. You got hit three times, and that yeah. that could possibly mean, especially now. I mean, it's December. I don't know where where are they located at. Are they south, northern? They're they're Columbia, so they're, yeah. Okay, okay. So it's hot. Um, yeah. So in my opinion, if, you're, if your customers are relying on you to keep them cool, keep them, you know, in the summer, um, keep them, you know, in a quality of life that is higher than normal. If they're getting hit and their services are getting shut down or, the you know, they lose substations, they lose power to customers three times, I mean, I'd be really worried if I were them. Um, so I don't know if it actually hit their their grid side. It might be more the business side, but you know, there's still affects customers couldn't get to websites and things like that. So I mean, there's still the worry, right? That it, oh, yeah. it got oh, yeah. that far. Yeah. And, yeah. Sorry, and I, I guess I should have explained that. Yeah, like they had services that were shutting down SCADA, or that could. I don't know if they did, but like you said, like they are starting to inch closer and closer, and and getting hit over and over. Like you're just leaving you know, a target on your back because you know those criminals, they communicate with each other. They talk to each other and say, hey, this is how it's done. If I were them, the first thing I would start doing is just looking at the critical security controls and start like 
work from there. If you have RDP open externally, like I don't know what you're doing <laughs> from a cybersecurity. It's a bad practice. Right, like that's horrible. So get your practices and get, start with your practices. Start working on that side of the house of how can we harden our environment, then slowly work your way up to the harder stuff. Like, all right, now we need an EDR. Now we need a uh, you know dedicates, and now we need a new CISA or whatever. But start with the start with the or close the gaps that you got hit on earlier. <laughs> I mean that just and that could be just having you know a couple firewall uh, technicians work overtime or over the weekend. And I'm sure those those little wins would save them a lot of money. They wouldn't have to pay a billion dollars for these technicians to go in and close unused ports. Uh, I think they should just start with the basics. Yeah, and they got the budget. So yeah, yeah, cool. So what do you got? Ah, uh, so my first article is from CyberScoop, and it's titled "CISA Researchers: Russia's Fancy Bear Infiltrated U.S. Satellite Network." Back in my former life and your former life. When we were in the military together, and for those who don't know it, Scott Pulley was my team leader at some point, we dealt with SATCOM or satellite communications. Uh, so this is kind of close to home as well. So Russia apparently got into the network of a what they call a space <laughs> space infrastructure. Uh, so they were they were in a satellite network. And they had uh, whoever or whatever they were doing. They got they used a 2018 exploit. They scraped a bunch of credentials that. Uh, when the, the credentials were used for ordinary accounts and the same credentials were used for emergency or elevated privilege accounts as well. Um, so there were a lot of issues going on here. I don't, I'm not trying to sit here and focus on Russia. What I actually want to pull away from is, one, I'm surprised that the SATCOM, or what they call the space technology industry, is not a critical infrastructure. And that blows my mind because um, we have energy, we have communications, you know, all those uh, transportation, all those industries that are critical infrastructure. And then yet this is not made it on that list now. And I also get that we have the Space Force that is supposed to be looking at satellites and protecting those things. But the issue here is that this is the second time in a year that a satellite communication network has gotten infiltrated. The first was uh, also attributed to Russia, but it was in February where uh, right before or during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that makes sense because, you know, in war, you want to turn their lights off so they can't see, and you want to shut down the communication so they can't talk. And that seems like what they are doing. And I'm not sure if they were actually targeting us or if it was just overlap from who they were targeting, but they got in the network again. Uh, a couple of things that, you know, I take away from this, though, is, you know, they're CISA is trying to get this technology designated as crit critical infrastructure, which would move that over. Uh, the standards and the regulations would now, from the government, would now uh, be put in place, which is a good thing because now they have a standard. Now they have a set standard that everyone is on the same page with. Granted, at this point, the government would inherit all this technical debt because just like you know, in the energy sector or all these different industries, there's a lot of legacy technology, and not because we're not updating it or not because we are failing in that in that field, but because when you have build a satellite that costs $10 million and it's functioning fine, but the newest satellite runs on you know Windows 10, but it's $30 million. And then that 10 mil that old $10 million satellite that runs on Windows XP, 
you know, do you really need to update the operating system to 10 and then have to pay the $30 million for the new satellite? It, you know, it, it doesn't make sense from a business side of the house, but what needs to be done is I think a larger organization needs to take a look at this and a larger organization needs to get all this on the same track so that, you know, it's not just ones and twosies or they're not independently run or having their own standards. Now, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's made me think of a few different things. One, you know, just the, the lack of encryption. You know, one of the things that people don't understand about satellite communications is, I mean, satellites are, are pushing a beam down that hits a huge footprint. So if anyone has the right technology to listen, I mean, they're able to intercept that communication. And if there's no encryption, um, a lot of times, I guess, they use obfuscation, but we know how far obfuscation can take you. You, you kind of aren't protecting whatever is being communicated. So if it's not if it's not really important, sure. But you know, they they mentioned uh, some SCADA data, um, which I know is time sensitive, and that's why encryption usually isn't applied to that kind of stuff. But you know, you're already transmitting things to a satellite, which builds in latency. So the SCADA data can't be a, a few extra milliseconds might not matter as much because you, unless you're getting close to those thresholds, then you got to rethink that whole solution. So, so there was that that I thought was really interesting that they, you know, didn't have encryption, but also you lose the authenticity and the integrity of the data, right? If it's not, it's one thing encryption also lands. If, you know, if you're transmitting something like SCADA and someone can change it or manipulate it because there is no kind of the encryptions, that, that's, that can be kind of scary too. But also, you know, the one thing they mentioned was the, how they're able to kind of get in is they're using the same credentials for the emergency accounts as the ordinary ones. Um, that's just kind yeah. of bad practice, right? That's something when you talked about, you know, them being added to critical infrastructure and having kind of some compliance regulations kind of stuff around them, it can kind of clean up some of that stuff. You know, obviously it's more of like an oversight thing than actually doing the work and making it happen right. But, you know, just like we all know, when it comes to compliance, it's, it's a good thing to have in place because it kind of keeps people in check. But, you know, with something like, you know, satellite communications and satellite networks, they still need to be built up with security in mind. It's not something that we need to have built functional and then figure out how to add security later, because that's going to be a, a much harder problem to, to try to solve that'd be better off, you know, doing it right the first time. And with, you know, the, all the big focus on space and things we want to do in space, obviously, if we're going to be pushing the envelope here, we're going to be targets from other people that want to compete with us. And we got to keep that in mind, right? as far as the United States goes. So there's that. And then when we talk about the, the unencrypted flow of satellite data, so I'm gonna make a, a call out to somebody uh, you may or may not know, but you know he wrote a book called Violent Python. It's TJ O'Connor. He was an officer in our space when we were in the military, same area. He's moved on to be the cybersecurity program chair for the Florida Institute of Technology. Great guy to follow. He does, he does great work in the cybersecurity space. But in this book, he even makes reference of this. In 2009, you know, U.S. forces were collecting laptops in Iraq that had footage from U.S. surveillance drones, basically because they're using similar type of technology like you would for satellite you know, communication to say these drones are sending the data and their feeds of what they're surveying down, and anyone can intercept that signal. And the people they were targeting were smart to figure out, oh, they're using this. And since they weren't, in, we weren't protecting it at that time with encryption, they were able to see what we can see and basically know what we're looking at. Oh, um, wow. Right. And so it's the same same type of risk. And it's not, it's, and, and I bring it up too, because when you talk about, you know, encrypted, when you have wireless communication that's not protected with encryption specifically, especially on a footprint as big as, you know, a satellite beam can hit mo multiple countries or an entire country. How do you protect that, right? 
Uh, and that's something that people don't think about, but we've known about the problem at least since 2009 and how it could be bad. And you know now it's 2022, so we should really be thinking about those things because it's not a, a new breaking concern. It's something that a lot of people should know about, but if they don't, the people that do should do something about. So, no, I agree. Two, yeah, that's my my two cents there. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much would have been stopped if they didn't overlap those accounts, but once again, just cyber hygiene. Um, mm -hmm. Going back to the basics. Enough about that. Uh, what's your next article? So yeah, I'm gonna get on my big soapbox here for this next one. Um, something I, I I love and I've been using a lot to just you know to figure out the benefits. But uh, Checkpoint, you know, they had an article, the Open AI that can save the day or hack it away, and they're talking about the um, Open AI and the Chat GPT stuff. So ChatGPT is a large language model. It's kind of like a chat bot, but you know, it's smart. They've trained it on people's conversations and real people's feedback. Um, it's got some built-in biases. So like, you know, you typically can't get a short answer because it has learned that I guess smart people with the answers usually talk a lot. So you usually get lengthy answers too, but they're not bad. They're just, you know, sometimes if you just want a quick answer, you don't get it. So there are some biases and they do a, a good job trying to, you know, fix other things too and, and try to make it accurate and things, but it's learning off what it's been trained on. So it doesn't necessarily have all the answers either, but what Checkpoint has done is shown how you can use it as, a, as an adversary, for instance. So it not only can give you answers for questions and things you wanna ask it, but you can also ask it technical things like, hey, how would I write this code for this? And it'll give you basically what language you choose, a good template of here, try this, or hey, look at this code what why is this not working or are there any vulnerabilities in the code i'm using and it can kind of give you rough estimates based on or not estimates but give you ideas of hey why this is bad or you know this is an issue or this is how you do this so the examples they fed it and it was able to successfully do was you know create a phishing email that seemed believable create some visual basic code you can put in excel um, that would download something. Okay, and they wanted to optimize it because the way it did it was too trivial and it was able to optimize a little bit. Um, create a reverse shell, do an example of SQL injection code or a port scanning code or sandbox detection code. And it was generating all these things. And then the last one they did was convert you know, your Python script to an executable. Like how would you do that? And it, it built a quick, what, what libraries you import and what you do to basically do that. And I've been hearing a lot of this and seeing this in a lot of different places. And Honestly, like it, I don't think people should be afraid of this. I, I think in some instances in the security community, we should kind of be ashamed. And I'll get into that because one, we shouldn't be afraid that it's making really trivial, basic things. And if someone were to then try to, this is how they're going to plan their attack is using chat GPT to build it. Gosh, security vendors should already be able to detect this basic stuff. That's That's a problem, right? If, if someone can write reverse shell, a basic reverse shell, and it can run and not be picked up by the security products that exist today, that's an issue. So there's that. And then also academia and training. Like I remember coming in as a security professional and I know about these things, like a reverse shell, SQL injection. I've heard the terminology. I know what it's used for, but how many people that grow up in security haven't actually seen code for what this looks like unless they've had hands-on analysis? Have, haven't had things they can use to test to see if their stuff even works. Like 
these are things I think people should have resources to and be able to do coming out as new security professionals. That I think this is why we kind of have a talent gap. So like I said, I'm getting on a soapbox kind of a way, but that my point is, is we, we our fears for chat GPT, I think is more our fears that we don't have people trained well enough because we haven't been doing this good of a job training our people with these types of examples and these and this kind of experience you can gain just by seeing this. Like, I think it's hugely valuable. With that takeaway, you know, they also showed how defenders can develop things, um, which I thought was good, where they, you know, so they or say write a quick query using the virus total API to submit hashes or do a Yara script that looks for this specific URL and strings. That's also really good. And that's also an advantage. Like if you don't have much experience, that's something you can do to, to grow and learn. And I use it um, for all sorts of things. Like what I, I think is great about it is, hey, if I'm researching an API function and I'm like, oh, this API function is used by malware, this adversary, like, well, what, where does this API function exist on the machine? Well, I can ask it, hey, I got this API, what DLL executable uses this? It gives me, give me that information back. That's usually valuable to get those types of answers or how does this protocol work? Like I hear this protocol used all the time, but I, you know, what's easier for me is to use chat GPT to explain it to me, then pull up an RFC that's, you know, 50 some pages long. And I have to figure out, well, what does it say? What's in, the, in this 50 pages is going to explain exactly what's happening in layman's terms. And you can actually have it dumb things down because you can say, hey, explain this to me like I'm a three-year-old and it will do that. And I was funny because I did a test to say, hey, explain this attack as if I was a three-year-old and it did. And then I did explain this as I was an executive and I expected it to do the same three-year-old discussion, but it didn't. It gave ex executives <laughs> a much higher, higher uh, caliber answer. Um, because I've always heard if you can't, you know, explain it like you would a three-year-old to an executive, you're not doing a good job. Well, that's not true. Executives can digest a lot more than you think. <laughs> like so, it. so yeah. And then the other thing that's really good, you know, it's going to save you time as defenders. Like if you need to write up a report on a threat actor or a summary or whatever, it's great for that. And you just have to polish it. Like think of the resources you can save. So I think there's a lot more potential for defenders than there really are for attackers because attackers if they want this stuff to work well assuming security vendors are doing their job they're still going to have to obfuscate whatever they get back they're still going to have to do all these really tricky things to make it work well guess what if they can do those tricky things they could probably write the code themselves too you know so does it really add much to the adversaries i don't think so but it's like the analogy i was thinking of when i was coming up with this whole conversation was have you ever tried to cook a five course meal in your kitchen without using a knife? You know, like knives are bad. They can hurt people and they're dangerous. It's like, no, you can't successfully cook a meal without a knife because it's so effective, but you know how to handle it and you know where to store it based on knowing the dangers of it. And ever from time to time, you might still cut yourself, but the benefits from using a knife in the kitchen is way more beneficial than trying to not use a knife at all. Right. And I think it's the same thing with a lot of these types of technologies. Like, yeah, we can see there's some inherent risk. And every once in a while, maybe it'll produce something that can be bad. Like it can be, you know, but it it shouldn't be catastrophic for one, because we should all be really good at our jobs and we should grow faster than the adversaries by using it. And two, it highlights many gaps I think we've had in our profession that it can help fill if used correctly. So, no, right, that's, so that's fucks a, off. No, it's all good. No, because that's a lot of good information. And you're right. So, the first first main question, I, or I guess the main topic I should say, uh, Polly, because this is like right down your alley. You love this type of stuff. Um, just let me know when I should be worried about my job. Um, so <laughs> I'll trust you on that. Second, you're talking about how this might be uh, able to be leveraged by threat actors uh, and whatnot. 
really this isn't something new like a new toolkit right this is mm -hmm. just another resource like i mean look at metasploit look at um cobalt strike we have all that stuff out there already that threat actors can get their hands on they can leverage they can attack us i think this is just like the newest worry i guess or newest topic to be talked about so, but you're right i don't think it should be uh, a big issue moving forward uh, i would like to see if there is a common way that it puts together whatever code it writes so that like you could write one yar <laughs> one yar rule to rule them all right uh, like this yeah. came from chat gpt also, you were mentioning, and what's what I think is really powerful about this is, well, one I think is funny is that they said write this code, and then they it did, and then they said write it better. Come on, uh, you know that cracks me up. But also, if you are learning or trying to get into cybersecurity, it seems like this is a free resource to start learning that stuff. Like you said, like if I've never seen this type of code before, just go ask it. See what it right. looks like. I don't know how much reference you can put on your resume to say I you know worked with Chat GPT for 50 hours or whatever. But this seems like a great opportunity for anyone in the cybersecurity industry that's already there or anyone that wants to get there to start just poking around, seeing what stuff looks like. Um, especially if you're a visual learner like me. Um, you know, I needed to stand up a, a malware lab because I needed to see the logs. I needed to see what was going mm -hmm. on. I think this is a very great opportunity for that as well. Um, well, so, I don't know, I'm excited for it. So you did bring something up that I that just kind of cracked me up. And that is, everyone's like, oh my gosh, look what you can create that's bad. And I'm like, well, gosh, you mentioned a bunch of tools that are just listed on GitHub. Maybe we should shut GitHub down. You know, like how many attack yeah. tools are in GitHub <laughs> that people leverage and use every day? And, and attackers are really good at using open source stuff. Um, and... And obviously they don't use it exactly how it's presented on GitHub. They take it and they change it or they add to it or obfuscate it. But it's the same thing. It's the exact same problem, except for the differences. I mean, ChatGPT probably has better structure than some of the things on GitHub and other things. But either way, learning how to hunt for things because you can see them happening, because you can test and do examples and recreate and tweak I think it's hugely beneficial for one, your professional career, two, your tool sets and architecture, and then your confidence just in your whole program. So no, I completely agree. It, it's I'm excited about this. Uh, I know it will be used and misused and abused, but I really feel like this is a a good resource for learning as well. Yeah. So I look forward to it. Cool. What do you got next? All right. So like I said, it's going to seem like I'm beating up Russia. Um, but <laughs> Palo Alto or unit Palo Alto's unit 42 uh, puts out some amazing reports. And this one's titled Russians Trident Ursa, AKA Gamaradon APT, cyber conflict operations unwavering since invasion of Ukraine. It's a lengthy one. I hope everyone goes to read it to see what I'm talking about. Honestly, I'm not even worried about the content or the story that it's being told right now. Because this is the type of article that, as a threat hunter, I really, really love to leverage. Don't get me wrong, the story is important. But if you go to it and you see it, there's a lot of indicators of compromise, and there's a lot of indicators of attack. And mm -hmm. I wanted to mention the difference between those two and their uses, right? So a lot of reports publish the indicators of compromise, so the um, or IOCs, so the you get the IPs, you get the URLs. 
you get the file names. And you know, you can use those in an instant response mode or in a uh, that type of capacity by searching through your environment in a quick manner, right? So if you a new Intel report comes out, you gather all those IOCs, then you throw them in a list, and then you you know do a 30-day, 90-day, 180-day, uh, whatever uh, your process is. You run that search, and you back you look at all the logs in the you know in the past, and say, are you finding these IOCs? So quick win, right? You can get a quick win there, or say, no, we haven't. Um, so we have not seen any of these IOCs that are known bads, right? Now, when it comes to what I like to call indicators of attack, that's a little bit different. That's more focused on behaviors and syntax of tools being used because a lot of stuff from PowerShell or command line or command prompt is captured. Uh, if you have command line arguments being audited, if you have EDRs, they're probably captured as well because you know what they type is really important to capture because then you can do some investigation and you can see you know, what type of activity is normal in your environment. But that's why I, I really enjoy this article because there is detailed technical information that threat hunters can use to create a hypothesis. So the first thing you wanna do when you wanna conduct a threat hunt is say, what type of activity am I looking for? And I'm gonna say, you know, uh, command and scripting interpreter, you know, one of the really common ones, it's uh, technique 1059 on the MitreTAC framework, but you know, using command prompt or PowerShell to achieve your objectives. And they provide a lot of screenshots. They provide a lot of event logs um, that contain this information that you can run in your environment to see if it's happening as well. And I'm not just saying, you know, look for these artifacts, what you can also scrape out of these uh, Intel, these amazing Intel reports is relationships between the processes and files being created or the processes and the parent process. You know, you can start to see how they function. What is PowerShell doing? If they are using PowerShell, what's the goal? Are they creating a file somewhere else? Are they modifying a registry key? Are they moving a file around? Are they creating a schedule task? So you have all these, all this information in front of you that you can start creating hypotheses or hypotheses and then conducting a hunt. So, you know, if I'm looking for, you know, I want to see if PowerShell is the parent process of command.exe. You know, just simple things like that, that threat hunters can really use to increase their knowledge base and increase the amount of hunts that they can do. I probably didn't do any justice to this article because I'm not even talking about the, the actual story. But what I found really, really important about this is that reports like these provide that relationship and those artifacts or indicators of attacks that we can really leverage. I mean, there's a registry key that gets created that calls a wscript.exe. You know, like just knowing that, like looking at the information, uh, I can now say, I can create multiple rules off this, right? I could say, you know, if this process runs this, you know, this exact command or parameters, flag it as malicious. Or if I'm looking at the registry key, if anything is created in the, you know, in the current version run hive, call it malicious. Like immediately, you know, you have that type of information. And once again, uh, I know I use the word a lot, but the relationships are insanely important because attackers are human, defenders are human, and hunters are human. We're, we're going to do things the same way over and over if we're successful because it's comfortable, you know, we get complacent, uh, and if we can catch the threat actor slipping, 
because they're doing the same thing over and over, then you increase your chances of success. What are your thoughts? I love hearing you talk because you make me think of so many other things I want to talk about. <laughs> so, so one, I don't even know if we read the, the, you read the title to the article, but I'll go ahead and read that real quick. And it's Russia's Trident Ursa, a.k.a. Gamma Raiden APT, Cyber Conflict Operations Unwavering Since Invasions of Ukraine. But like you were saying, they did so many things, articles full of information. And just to kind of highlight what majority of the information is about is about how they hid their tactics. So they did a ton of obfuscation of things. They did a ton of like misdirection. Even this, the, they did some stuff with DNS that just, first time I've ever seen someone do this, but you know, it also shows how the adversary understands how incriminating DNS logs can be to them. So they were actually using valid websites they can do DNS lookups for you. You can be like, hey, go to this website that they know, right? And say, give me the DNS reverse lookup of this domain. They were using HTTP calls to those sites to get the DNS return for their C2 because their domains would stay consistent, but their IPs would rotate really fast on their C2. And so you wouldn't have a DNS log anymore because it would be in your proxy log. Or they even had instances where they used the Telegram messenger that would communicate via that direction to ask the same request so whoever's on the other end receiving that telegram uh, message will then resolve it and send it back so there would be no dns logging so you know just stuff like that but there's some other great crazy obfuscation but then you talk about hey there's some weird relationships that we should be focusing on right well one that i don't know how many if i were to print this how many pages to be but you have multiple 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 pages when you mentioned the w script execution they went through all of that trouble to hide so it's hard to analyze the files do whatever but they have a scheduled task it's calling w script targeting let me see where the, the path of that file is i just had it on my screen and i scrolled away to look how big the document was it was in this the users i'm probably updated i didn't really say or roaming but it's in the user space a w script calling something there as a scheduled task and the register run key like those are not normal. And it's funny that if you just hunted or looked for those types of things, all that work they do to hide everything else wouldn't matter. You would find oh, yeah. them, right? And and that's what's so empowering about being a defender is you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to stop every single step of an execution chain or whatever it is. You just need to understand, okay, where are the points that they have to do something a certain way that they can't change? They have no control over. They don't control the operating system. Things have to execute a certain way. Sometimes they find really creative ways of doing that, but there's always some point where they don't have all the information or all the knowledge that they will make something that is very detectable. And that is a great use case for that. And the other thing with relationships, and I was I, I dug really hard and spent some time trying to find this in a short amount of time that I had, was you know they used HTML and phishing. And it was something where the HTML had a base 64 encoded raw or zip that inside of that had an LNK, you know, shortcut link that when open would kick off to a URL that pulled down an HTA file and run a VB script. Like a lot of misdirection there, right? With all yeah. the things that have to happen. I don't think it was Russian, but I couldn't find the article. I was looking at something I want to say last week or the week before for the podcast where I saw the same thing. It was, and they didn't mention how it was um dbase 64ing it and it was in the one i found it was the same tactic html phishing base 64 encoded payload 
but it was decoding with JavaScript. So there's JavaScript in there, which wasn't mentioned, but I'm assuming that's similar here. But you got to think through that whole execution chain. What does that look like, right? When you you get a file create that's from an HTML opening, like what's creating the file? What's the process that owns that? And then you have something that then executes an LNK from within a zipper RAR. What does that look like? You know, and then then you have an HTA that is executing a VB script. Like, what does that look like, right? So like those points in that whole chain or that whole chain together is something very identifiable just on the phishing part of the, the attack. And, and granted, maybe that's a really complex thing to try to emulate in your environment to do. But if you can emulate parts of that chain, right? Like you, you have the knowledge or the resources or the talent on your teams to say, hey, can you write an LNK that pulls down a URL HTA thing that executes something? Like if you could just do that piece, that's still not a common thing that happens in environments, I would assume that you could still use to hunt and find and maybe build detections around. And that is like what's so cool about our field and our value is just be able to spot those things and then figure out how it's done. And then maybe you can use chat GPT to help you out with this, right? Like it might be really complicated, <laughs> but you can be like, hey, I need to write a URL and LNK to pull an HTA. What does that look like? Be like, boom, there it is, right? So a good example of where we can tie back the value of chat GPT is something as complex as a really intelligent Russian APT group. So... Oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting and I think is, you know, people should be aware of, like people hear about the Ukrainian attack and Russia always going after them. True, yes, Russia is going to be continuously going after Ukraine if they're in a war. That's just part of cyber war. But they also mentioned in here, and they mentioned it twice, and it was very, very, very brief, but they saw the same indicators for some of their campaigns hitting a large petroleum refinery in NATO country, a NATO control country or participant, you know, native participant, which is outside of bounds as far as what the efforts are. But what's always interesting is there's always been this line of where does cyber be active war? You know, you in, yep. in the past, you would have said, oh man, if they're attacking something, you know, in NATO cyber, that would be an active war. Those lines are so fuzzy now, it's not, right? Like no one's doing anything back. Obviously they stopped the attack, so it wasn't successful. So then, then does it become an act of war if you stopped or thwarted? I don't know. But with all the sanctions and things happening, this is for the Intel folks really, and energy being a huge part of the Russian economy, I would totally expect there to be cyber related attacks, especially over winter time against energy providing companies in NATO European areas, because it, it meets the agenda of and the economy of what Russia needs. So I, I, you know, they mentioned that one instance. I doubt that's the only instance, but for people to be aware of, that's why this attack, you know, even though it was targeting Ukraine, these techniques still might be important elsewhere. So don't get blinded just based on the target selection either. No, I, I definitely agree. Maybe we should start uh, asking Chad GPT if, hey, you know, is this normal? <laughs> should you know? Should WinWord be opening or uh, executing PowerShell? One, I almost used that uh, that article that you just mentioned actually as this week's article. Um, uh, no, it, it's it's crazy, right? The amount of information, and I think that's why um, you know vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities, especially with zero days and exploits and stuff like that. That that can worry defenders. Yeah, I, I get that. That makes sense. But even if a vulnerability is exploited. And I think you mentioned it, but guess what's next? 
the human has to <laughs> has to do yeah. something right they have to use their knowledge to move on and that's that's what we like to try and focus on because yeah i get a new exploit every day or a new zero day is scary but if you are monitoring the right things and you're actually proactively hunting if that vulnerability gets exploited then you still may be able to still be able to catch them early right you'll know about it right right but i'm gonna say enough about russia uh, <laughs> unless your next article is about russia no let's talk about the u.s again um All right, yeah so this is you know i originally found this not through krebs but i use krebs on security because they're like the the source that i kind of tied this back to and it was the fbi's vetted info sharing network infraguard hacked and basically what happened is there was an attacker, we'll call him, used the real information like name, phone number, and things of a CEO of, of a large financial firm to register for an account in Fregard. But they, instead of using the, the real email address of the CEO, they used whatever email address they wanted to communicate with. And, you know, Infraguard has a two-factor thing set up, but you can use your email for that. So that's what they did. And they were able to approve, the you know, FBI, you know, approved their accounts fairly quickly and they got in and they were able to basically steal all the information, you know, for InfraGuard. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, I've been, a, I've been a part of InfraGuard and other seats and things, and it really truly is like a network of people, right? Like people that have been semi vetted to where you can find resources to share, or if the FBI wants to push like bulletins out and usually things that are just blasted out, it's like not, super classified data it's, it's like unclassified but kind of like need to know like they're not going to be like hey we want to tell everybody about this but or or maybe your eyes see it first in regard and then it becomes public like a month later kind of thing on some stuff so it's not really damning information lost and then the member like i think they stole the membership yeah, like all the members right so there's a potential that biggest thing they're concerned about is social engineering there's no social security numbers or you know pii information that could be damning to people but obviously there's this trust relationship right if you if someone reaches out to you because they know you're part of infraguard and they're going to exploit that you're a member to try to do things like maybe there's things there but you know people that are part of infraguard are supposed to be security minded so hopefully that doesn't you know drop their walls of defense and and you know infraguard is a place where i think they can set up organizing classified briefs you know so they don't have classified briefs in any information or classified data but you know, you have a roster of people you've kind of already trust, and then if they have the clearances, you can say, "Hey, we can hold a classified brief at this location that's approved or whatever." So it can ha help coordinate things like that. But you know, the biggest lesson here is obviously they should be better at vetting, you know, the participants, right? Then oh, yeah. obviously they see a name, a number, like you know, it, maybe you need to use a company email address, or if you're you know not part of a company and you're a researcher, then have some other way, extra steps if that's the case, right? But the other thing is, you know, trust is really really hard to gain, but really easy to lose, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And this is something that I think security professionals need to um, take seriously too, because. For an organization to trust you, you have their best interests involved and you're making the best decisions in security. Like you think about the people you serve as far as an organization, a company, like they don't know what you know when it comes to security. So they really are kind of forced to trust you, but you're able to do a lot more and have a lot more latitude when they really do trust you, right? And a security incident, especially when there's negligence, 
and or or a poorly performed investigation or you know just not the best work being done you can lose that trust very easily and as a security professional that's that's not it's it's something you want to try to protect um protect for your team protect for you as an individual and this i think is a good lesson on that because infraguard is you know, one of those things that it's it's a network it's a way to kind of get people communicating interacting with the fbi and and trust me like fbi struggle because they're really 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 good at hey if you bring us in because you have a cyber incident you know we're not going to out you to public the public of that hey these people were hit we're not going to be in there trying to get you in trouble for things you know we just want to help and people don't trust the fbi even on that i remember trying to engage the fbi multiple times and you know there's a lot of people like no we're, we're not going to contact law enforcement that'd be bad for us it's not they're really really good to work with and they can be very very helpful but they already have this people don't trust the fbi because they're feds it's yet that stigma to it and this doesn't help even more right yeah um, I, I don't think it's just just the fbi i think it's government <laughs> yes yes yeah so Whenever I see attacks like this happening, and like you said, the vetting process probably could have been better. And, you know, the requirements for 2FA, you know, maybe make it, uh, you know, an out of band. What you said, they could use the email address as their 2FA. Yeah, but if you're going to do that, make it a, more requirements around the email, right? Right, right. Do the something process for implementation. Little, yes. Whenever this happens, I'm always. I always just think that they are, they're trying to get a list of people. Because uh, really, if you attack InfraGuard, and are you going to ransomware? Like, you know, this is just all about collecting information. Yeah. Um, finding out, you know, maybe you can find out who's. I think they you know, did ask for, like, uh, if you want the information back, they were saying, you know, charge 50000 but they even said they didn't think they'd get anything for it. <laughs> yeah. Like, but. you know, because that's not the, the goal. It's not that they're, they're not getting proprietary information or anything. Right, right. Um, or maybe if they do, it's very, very little. But the I, I honestly see the idea here is who's part of the program? Who can we now fish with InfraGuard emails? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. we know it's breached. So we know InfraGuard's probably going to be reaching out or the FBI or the government's going to be reaching out saying, hey, if you were part of this, this is how we're handling it. Um, so the threat actors alone could now craft phishing emails. Uh, what, just like they did Rackspace, right? Yeah, um, yeah, good call. And they could say, you know, now we're trying to target you. We know who you are. Now we're trying to target you. We have a way in because, hey, we're the CEO of this company, right? But interesting as always. Yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, it was just kind of interesting uh, piece of news, but it really made me think about the whole trust thing, right? Like trust is really important in our field because there's a lot to know and people have to trust those that are supposed to be responsible to know, so... And we're and at the same time we're pushing zero trust. <laughs> yes. That, well that just shows how scared people are, right? <laughs> no one. We should have started with zero trust. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that wraps up for me. I don't know, is that all your parting comments as well? Yeah, no, I got nothing left. If you know, like I said, if anyone's out there, you know, trying to get into threat hunting and uh trying to see what we were talking about, definitely go visit that uh Unit 42 article, it's super technical, uh, and you'll start seeing the indicators of attack versus the indicator of compromise that you know we spoke about. All right, so yeah, as a reminder, because of the holidays, we'll be taking a, a break for next week. 
So be sure to check back after the holidays. Uh, we'll be picking right back up and having some more fun. So thanks everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to sinking back after the holidays. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of December 19th, 2022. Happy hunting. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.